In today's episode of I Believe Now What, we are going to talk about a topic that is not talked about nearly as much as it should be, and definitely not as much as it is today as it probably was in the past, and that is the Lord's Supper, coming to the Lord's Table, or otherwise known as Communion. This is a very important topic because this is one of the two ordinances that Jesus himself told us that we should follow in, one being baptism and the other being this topic, coming to the Lord's table. Well, with all that being said, hope you enjoy the episode. Let's go. Hello, everybody. My name's Tim Perko, and you're listening to I Believe. Now what? Welcome back to another episode, everyone. I hope y'all having a wonderful week out there. First, if this is your first time listening, I Believe Now What is a podcast that pretty much answers itself in its name. We want to talk about the now what. What comes after you make that decision to follow Christ? What comes after that? So on this podcast, we'll talk about doctrine, we'll talk about theology, we'll talk about Bible studies, we'll talk about topical studies, You pretty much you name it, anything that has to do with the Christian walk of life, and we do it geared for the everyday Christian. We want to make this stuff simple and easy to understand, because at the end of the day, Christianity can seem very complex when you look from the outside and you see all these people with doctorates and all this other you know stuff, and that that's good. But sometimes it could confuse people. We want to talk about that stuff, but in a very plain, simple, and easy-to-understand way. With that being said, now, if you have a topic that you want to hear talked about, or maybe you have a question or a comment, or you just want to complain and disagree with me, uh, by all means, do that. Uh, you can find us on social media, at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Just type in I Believe Now What, or you can write us an uh, email. <laughs> I had lost my words there for a second, but you could write us an email at ibnwpodcast at gmail.com. And I do want to say, if you have any disagreements with what I say, I am 100% for that. I am not perfect. I make mistakes. All I ask is that you provide maybe a scriptural reference uh, to what you disagreed with and actually point out the topic so I can go back and research and study it. And I will correct myself on this show because like I said, I am not perfect. I am far from it. I am a sinner who is saved by grace, just like every other Christian. So with that being said, let's go ahead and start diving into this episode. So the Lord's table, like I said in the introduction, this is important, one, because it's an ordinance from God. If you don't know what an ordinance is, it is essentially, by dictionary, a divine decree. This is something Jesus told us that we should do. Like I said, the first one is baptism, and the other one is this, taking the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. Now, if you're going to be following along in your Bible, we are going to be spending the majority of our time in 1 Corinthians chapters 11, but... If you are driving, then obviously just listen to what I got to say and look it up later. But I do encourage you to look this stuff up. Never just take my word for it. Never take anybody's word for it. Make sure you are looking this up, studying it yourself, and praying it over yourself. Now, before we really start getting into what the Lord's Supper is and how we are to partake of it in Christian, as Christians and why this is so important, I first want to define what it is not. Because sadly, you will see, depending on what you believe about Christianity, differences in how people view this act. And actually, the biggest difference you can see is between Catholics and Protestants. There's a minor variation in Protestants, but we'll talk about that. Essentially, I'll start off with the Catholics. Number one, Catholics believe in something called transubstantiation. That's a big fancy word, but essentially it means to change the substance of. 
So what they believe happens when they perform the Eucharist at Mass, they will, the, the, the priest believes that he can call the Holy Spirit down and ask him to change the bread and the wine of the Eucharist or of the communion and turn it into the literal body and blood of Christ. While it may look like bread and it looks like wine still, it's literally the substance of it has changed into the actual body and the actual blood of Christ. And I know what most people think when they first hear this, you know, this is cannibalism. (laughs) And, And, you know, it sounds a lot like it, honestly. But that's essentially what they believe. And it's funny because actually I, I think a lot of Catholics don't even realize that this is what they believe. My, my wife, who I mentioned, was a, for, is, a for, is a former Catholic. And I asked her about this when I was first studying about transubstantiation and what they view and believe. And she's like, no, we, don't be- we didn't believe that. Nobody believed that. And I'm like, well, the, right here in your doctrine, this is what it states they believe. And actually goes back to the question, you know, I was like, what do they do with the extra leftover stuff? And uh, I was watching a YouTube channel one day and it came across where he wanted to talk to a Catholic priest. He did. And he actually asked that very question. I guess they have a separate place where they put all that because like they said, you know, they believe this is the literal body and blood of Christ. You're not just going to throw it down the drain or throw it away in the trash. So they actually have like a separate device that they hold it in. But I want to say first off that this, this is wrong for a few different reasons. Number one, Uh, I want to say how they defend this. Normally, they'll point back to that passage where Jesus says you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to inherit the kingdom of God, to be saved. Uh, That's that's taking something way out of context. If you if if you if you've ever read the Bible, especially Jesus's words, he uses a lot of hyperboles. Jesus also said, if your arm causes you to sin, go ahead and chop it off. If your eye causes you to lust, go ahead and gouge it out. Now, we don't go to church and see a whole bunch of people with gouged out eyes and missing hands, right? This is the same thing he's doing with this eat my flesh and drink my blood. There's a different meaning behind it. It's the same reason why Jesus talked in parables. He talked in parables to have people think and really to, he explains, you know, he talks in these parables because it's going to be foolishness to those who are really perishing, you know, but people who truly believe in God They'll dig in, meditate, uh, see it, and they'll believe in these parables that Jesus is saying. They'll see the different analogies that Jesus is drawing up, this being one of them. Now, back onto the whole transubstantiation thing. Like I said, this is what essentially happens every single Sunday at the Mass. Priest asks the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit changes it to the physical body and the literal body and blood of Christ. It may look like a cracker or a wafer still. It may look like wine still, but the substance of it has changed. That's what they believe. Now, Lutherans, this is where we get into Protestants now, and there's really only two different views that, that are pretty much mainline. One is something called consubstantiation. Uh, Lutherans hold to this very well. I'm sure some other denominations might as well, but I know Lutherans are primarily the ones for this, and this is where they believe that while the bread and the wine are exactly that bread and wine, Christ then enters into them. So he, he kind of coexists with the bread and the wine. He's, he's, he's in it, he's above it, he's around it, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, this is what they believe. A little bit more believable to me, but I don't believe that to be case, just simply because we don't see any of that in Scripture. Now, what most mainline Protestants typically believe is 
something called symbolic communion. And I, I had struggled to find the words because I never really had to put a label on it before, but it's something we call symbolic communion. We believe that the bread and the wine are exactly that, bread and wine. And they are symbols of Christ's body and Christ's blood. And we do this primarily in remembrance of him. Now, we don't believe that the Spirit is completely absent of that or Christ is absent in this whatsoever, just as when we gather every single time for church or even when you're just praying. You know, we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is among us. The Spirit is with us. Christ is with us. God is with us as we do this and we partake in the taking of the Lord's Supper. But I just want to say and make clear that from what we read in the Bible, it's very clear that this is something we do in remembrance of Christ, not for any other specific reason. And that gets into my next point. Number two, we do not do this to get saved. Uh, I'm not going to dive super big into Catholic theology just because I'm not as educated enough to talk about it. Probably should get a Catholic on here one day, and maybe we could discuss it in greater depth. But essentially, Catholics do view communion as part of the process in salvation, uh, like kind of like for maintaining your salvation. Uh, I'm not going to get into the whole bit about Catholic theology, but that's just wrong. You know, it's not true. We are saved by grace through faith alone. There's nothing that we can do. So we don't take communion in order to get saved, but instead we take communion because we're saved. It's kind of the same thing with works. You know, we don't do works to get saved, but we do good works because we are saved. You know, we want to please the Lord. We want to listen to what he has to say. And just like we said, this is one of two ordinances that Jesus himself pushed out. One being baptism, a one-time deal, and two, communion. And we're going to get into this some more as we actually dive through our passages. So with all that being said, let's actually dive into our passages. And 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 17, is where we're going to be. And I want to place a little bit of context for you. What the Apostle Paul is doing here is he is going to be correcting the church in Corinth on their misconduct, and especially in their misconduct of how they come to the Lord's table. They were doing it wrong, essentially, and Paul is giving them some very serious correction in this section of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to kind of break it down as we go over verse by verse and talk about these key points. Let's let the Bible speak for itself. So, verse 17, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you have come together, not for better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there's divisions that exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For, the, for there must be factions among you so that those who are approved or those who are actually Christians may become evident to you. So in other words, what he's saying here is like, look, I'm hearing there's divisions among you. And just like in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you saw they were arguing and suing each other. So this isn't a surprise. And Paul actually goes on sarcastically to say, I believe this. You know why? Because the true Christians among you are not going to be putting up with this horrible stuff that you are currently doing right now. And this gets into verse 20. He says, therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? No, I will not praise you in this. So let's break this down a little bit. This is 
like I said, Paul is giving them some serious correction. And we see some very serious errors here. Number one, he says when they meet together, he said, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. You think you're coming together to eat the Lord's Supper. That's not what you're doing. Because he says, when you come together, you have people eating their own meals first. So in other words, they're getting there and they're trying to eat their food before other people arrive so they don't share it in, in these days. And this is obviously, this is like a church potluck in a way. You know, they're supposed to all bring food and they all come together and they all join and they eat together. Well, there were people that were bringing their own food and eating their own food and not sharing it amongst others. So other people were coming to the Lord's Supper hungry. You know, probably poorer people who couldn't afford these things. Not very Christ-like. And then in the very next part of the passage, it says another is drunk. So they're getting drunk off the communion wine. This is crazy. This is, and you know, not to, you know, because I, I preach at a Baptist church, but uh, for my Baptist brothers and sisters out there who always think whenever they're referring to wine, it's grape juice. It's definitely not grape juice. It was fermented, but I digress from that topic on. Uh, people were getting drunk off the communion wine. This is crazy. This is not right. And even in verse 22, the very first word the Apostle Paul says, not every translation puts this out here, but he says, what? Like, what? Are you serious? He says, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? He's pretty much saying, you might as well not even came. You should have just ate at your own house if you were going to disgrace the Lord's table like this. This is sad. He's saying there's people hungry. There's people getting drunk. There's people being selfish, eating their own food. You're arguing amongst each other. This is not how you conduct the Lord's supper. So he continues on to say, what shall I say to you? Should I praise you? Absolutely not. I'm not going to praise you in this. And now in verse 23, we get some more specific instructions on how to properly conduct the Lord's table. But not only that, warnings against those who do not do it properly. Verse 23 says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat, in this, uh, eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, a few things to take away from this. Number one, I want to say, uh, that this account, actually, that we just read right here, this is the first account written, or at least most scholars agree, that this is the very first account of the Last Supper written inside the Bible. Let me rephrase that in another way. So most scholars believe that 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, is older than the written accounts of Jesus in recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and especially John. We know John was written in like 90 AD, uh, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke too. We we believe that this letter to first the, the church in Corinth came before them. This is important for a few different reasons. One, it shows us that the Apostle Paul didn't read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and just go, oh, let, let me write about this this way. No, this means he received direct revelation from the Lord, direct commands from the Lord, on this subject and how it was properly to go about. Uh, Paul, we know Paul didn't receive direct revelation on everything that he wrote about. He even says sometimes, you know, I'm going to give my opinion here, or this is what I believe. But we see clearly here 
that he was given direct instruction from the Lord on this because he wasn't present at the Last Supper. Remember, Paul did not get converted to Christianity until after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and the ascension. In fact, we even see it in verse 23 where he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Meaning this message that I'm delivering to you right now, this is something that I got directly from God. So this is very key and important when remembering uh, this verse or this passage that, that we are receiving direct instruction from the Lord through Apostle Paul. Number two, we actually get some really good instructions on how to actually conduct the Lord's table out of this. Uh, one, I've said it before in previous messages, but you know the Lord's table doesn't just have to be the way where where we do it in church today. There's nothing wrong with it where you know you get up and you take your your wafer, your oyster cracker, and then you got your little cup of grape juice or wine, and then you you go ahead and take it that way. You can do this in a full-on meal fashion, just like we saw at the Last Supper and the different accounts you can see throughout the four Gospels, or you, you can see right here, this is probably how the church in Corinth liked to conduct their uh, Lord's Supper, was having a big feast. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, as long as you do it properly. A third thing that we can take away from this is we see this ordinance is not just a one-time thing. The Apostle Paul in verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we can see this is something that we can do multiple times. This isn't a one-time deal. While baptism is a one-time deal, you do that after you profess to believe in Christ, you get baptized, uh, and then, you know, you're good. The Lord's table, on the other hand, is something that we can do often. Uh, some churches will do it once a week. Other churches will do it once a month. Some churches may only do it once a year or maybe on Christmas and Easter or whatever the case may be. But I, personally, this is just my personal opinion here. I'm a fan of doing it more often than not. And I'll get into the reasons why on that a little bit later. But essentially, it, it's it's this time of self-examination and we're doing it amongst brothers and sisters in Christ, and I think that is a beautiful, glorious thing, and I think we should do it often. I would say every week, in my own opinion. Uh, that being said, my church, we we practice actually every fifth Sunday. That's something that the elders of the church sat down and did, and like I said, I don't think there's absolutely anything wrong with that. There's no specific instructions in the Bible on how often we are to do this. It just says when we do it, we should do it like this. And lastly, from that little chunk we just read, we can see that we are to keep doing this until the Lord comes, until the Lord returns, and then we'll have the marriage supper of the Lamb that's talked about in the book of Revelation. Now, with all that being said, I do want to make reference that there is Old Testament context to this as well. It's always very important. The Old Testament is wonderful. Sadly, there's some movements that are going on today where they think we need to unhitch from the Old Testament and we don't need it anymore because we have the New Testament, you know, maybe hyper-dispensationalism a lot of times will fall into this category. Not every time, but a lot of the times. And that's simply not true. The Old Testament, we need, because the Old Testament actually proves the New Testament even more, especially the life and work of Christ and everything that he did. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul quotes so much out of the Old Testament. It's not just because the audience that he was primarily addressing a lot of times was Jewish. It was because it was relevant and shown 
who Christ actually was. Because when you go through and read your Old Testament, and this is something I love doing, I love looking at all the different signs that point to Christ throughout the Old Testament. And there are so many of them in the Old Testament. I can't even begin to talk about how many times you can see Jesus and a giant arrow sign pointing to him in the Old Testament. And this Passover meal that the Jews celebrate, that's one of them. Jesus himself really being the final Passover, the true Passover lamb that washes away the sins of the world. So long story short out of all that, don't forsake the Old Testament. In fact, embrace the Old Testament, read it. And honestly, just like I I said I like to do, go do that. Read the Old Testament and try to look for those signs of Christ as you can see. Because like I say, and I'll say it a thousand times again, the Old Testament is a giant arrow sign pointing to Christ. Now we're going to go ahead and move on to verse 27, and here we're actually going to see some warnings that the Apostle Paul is giving here. And he says right here, verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now that's a scary verse right there. If you do this, and if you take communion in an unworthy manner, you're going to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. I don't know what all that entails. Well, actually, I do because he actually talks about it, but that's scary. So I think first we must define what does he mean by coming in an unworthy manner? Well, we talked about some of it already. What we saw the church in Corinth doing, people were getting drunk off the wine. They were selfishly eating. They weren't examining themselves properly before they came there. And that's the key right there. You have to examine yourself. And he talks about that in verse 28. But a man must examine, and I'm reading now, verse 28, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. So we see from those verses that when we come to the Lord's table, we must be in examination for ourselves. What, what, what exactly are we examining? We're going to go over it here pretty soon uh, when we start wrapping this up, but essentially you are examining your life, and where you are with Christ, you're looking at the cross and what Christ did for you, you're looking inside your life, seeing if you have any unconfessed, unrepentant sin inside your life, and you're confessing that to Christ, and you are confessing these sins to him. We don't want to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So the next question might be asked, well, what's the consequences of being guilty of the body and blood of the Lord? Well, in verse 30, he says, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Wow. So he's saying, because these people were improperly taking communion, some of them were weak, some of them were sick, and some of them have even died. That's what he says when he says sleep. That's a common... Using the word sleep is a common thing that we see throughout the New Testament referring to Christians who have died, that they have, their body is asleep, because that's pretty much what it looks like, their body's asleep. Now, what I don't want you to do is confuse this, this is going off on a little tangent here, confuse this with what the Seventh-day Adventists uh, believe, which is called something called soul sleep, where they believe once you die, you're simply sleeping until the Lord returns that is not true. We know that not to be the case. The Apostle Paul himself said uh, to die is gain, and to be absent from the body is to be present for the Lord. We know as soon as we die, our soul will be present 
with the Lord. We will be present with Christ, into the presence of Christ as soon as we die. Our soul does not sleep or anything like that. There's nothing in Scripture that talks about it. Our body may look like it's asleep because this body is dead, and one day our body will be resurrected into a new and better body, but (laughs) our soul is definitely not asleep. All right, side tangent over on that. But we can see from these verses that if you come and receive communion in an unworthy manner, you could get sick and you can potentially even die. And then in verse 31, he says, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Meaning we have to look inside of ourselves and judge ourselves. That's why I said it's important that we are confessing our sins to God daily. We are confessing to him. We are asking him to dig up these things that maybe we don't even know we're doing. We may not even know we're sinning. We're asking the Lord to bring these things up so that way we can repent of them and ask for forgiveness. I want to remind you what repentance means. Repentance means to change your mind on something. Your mindset has now been changed. doesn't mean it's never going to happen again. You still may have some issues with that sin. But essentially, repentance is you are changing how you view that sin. Something that you loved before you were a Christian, something that you loved doing, and it was blatantly a sin, you no longer love it anymore. You actually hate it and despise it. You can go check out Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 14 for that, if you ever want to look into it. But yes, verse 31 says, we need to go ahead and judge ourselves so that way we're not judged. And in verse 32, he actually gives a good explanation here. He says, but when we are judged, and he's talking about uh, by the Lord, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that way we will not be condemned alone with this world. In other words, he's saying, if you are a true believer in God, and you are living in some type of unrepentant sin, he's going to come after you. And he's going to come after you in the same way that a father would come after their Uh, son or daughter when they're messing up, or the same way a mother would come after their son or daughter when they're messing up, and they would correct them. They would punish them for what they did, so that way they know that it was wrong, so they don't do it again, or at least they know that it's now wrong, and it will prevent them, hopefully, from doing it again. But that's what he means by saying the Lord is going to discipline us so we're not condemned alone with this world. That's what he does for his children. Now, in verse 33, it says, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Don't selfishly eat your... Now I'm adding here, but don't selfishly eat your food before other people, just like uh, he was mentioning in the previous verses we are reading. And then in verse 34, he says, If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come to gather for judgment. He's saying, If you are just absolutely so starving, and this meal is the meal that you've been looking forward to all day, then just eat at home. Just, just eat at home. Don't, don't come to the Lord's table because you're not coming for the right reasons now. You're coming to gorge yourself on food rather than to come in deep examination of yourself before the Lord and remember what Christ did on the cross for us. And then he goes on to say, the remaining matters I will arrange when I come, meaning I'm, I'm going to come. I'm going to come to y'all and I'm going to go ahead and give y'all some further instruction on this. Now, this is where our passage ends and really where our teaching ends on the actual, uh, you know, coming to the Lord's table from the point of Scripture. Now, I do want to summarize pretty much what he said in some key points, because I, I, I would be remiss if I did not go over this. I want to give you a few things to keep in mind the next time that you come to the Lord's table 
during communion. So essentially, what I was able to pull out of all this, and I prepared it so that way I wouldn't stumble through and mess this up, but I I was able to find five key things that we need to do whenever we come to the Lord's table and before we come to the Lord's table. And I'm not sure how your churches ran and how some do it. I know in my church, what we do is typically we will give the call to come up or we'll pass out, you know, depending on what's going on. We don't really have a structure to that. We'll either pass it out or we'll call people to come up to the Lord's table. They'll receive the bread. They'll receive the grape juice because we don't use wine in our church. (laughs) Not that it really matters uh, because it's all symbolic anyways. And we'll go ahead and bring those substances and they'll come up and gather. And then we'll leave uh, a few minutes for people to go ahead and do what we talked about, examine themselves. And they will go through and we'll take as long as as we possibly need to do that. And then we'll go ahead and read scripture and then go ahead and eat and drink the elements of the communion. So obviously, if your church does not allow time for this examination, and you know you have a communion service coming up, then you need to do that beforehand, before you arrive to church. Uh, don't always think you're going to be afforded the time. And honestly, these are these things are just good practices to do, period. Not just before you receive the Lord's Supper. So number one, let's dive into it. Number one, we need to first look to God. All right, we need to look for to God for thanks. We thank him for allowing us to actually be a part of this supper and to be a part of his son's life in the way that he saved us. We need to thank him for the sacrificing of his son, uh, for what Jesus did on the cross for us, which leads us into our next point. We need to look at the cross. We need to look to Christ specifically and the work that he did on the cross. We need to thank him for that. We need to remember what Christ even said it himself. Do this in remembrance of me and everything that he did. Remember, picture that mental image in your head. And I know it gets really hard with all the, you know, the the passion of the Christ or the chosen. And that gets on a whole nother topic I'm not going to talk about today where they replace these images in our heads of what we think Jesus would look like or something like that. But just picture for yourself. Think on what Christ did on the cross for you, how his body was beaten for us, how his blood was shed for us. Think about that. Dwell on that, on what Christ did. Number three, we need to examine ourselves, just like we talked about. We need to confess our sins to God. We need to acknowledge our sins before God, and we need to search our heart for any unrepentant sin that we may have in our lives. And like like I said, I personally pray to God, bring out, if I'm sinning against you, God, in any way, shape, or form, and I am ignorant to it, Lord, please point it out of my life so that way I can get rid of that, forsake it. I want the Lord to chase me in my sins and punish me when I mess up, especially when it comes to ignorant sinning and I don't even realize that I'm doing it. I want the Lord to bring that stuff out of me, even if it's painful and it hurts. I want to do what's right by the Lord. Also, when we are examining ourselves, we need to make sure that we're not trusting in our own works in any way, shape, or form, but rather we are constantly clinging on to Christ. And actually, I don't even like that terminology. I only rephrase that. We need to make sure that we are constantly looking to Christ because we don't hang on to Christ. Christ hangs on to us, and he's never going to let us go. Just want to make that point very clear. But yes, we have to examine ourselves. Number four, we have to look 
around us. We can see from the church in Corinth that they were having issues with each other, and they were not discerning the body correctly, and they were letting these issues go unresolved. Now, obviously, everything's not always going to be peachy keen inside your church. You're not always going to have the perfect, most ceremonious and harmonious views of everybody else. There's going to be disagreements. There's going to be arguments. There's going to be topics that we go over. But essentially, before we come to the Lord's table, we need to put those to the side or at least have the resolution in our mind that we are going to try to get this right. And we need to put away the petty arguments, put away the, 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 the disagreements and divisions that we have, as long as we do not forsake the truth when we do so, uh, when we come to the Lord's table. And number five, lastly, we need to look forward to the day when Christ returns. We need to look forward for that day. That's what we need to be looking at, how when Christ returns, we need to be looking forward that day with an eager longing and hope, as it talks about in Romans chapter 8. I truly believe that eventually we are going to have our good marriage supper with the Lord. It talks about it in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 10. Let me read it real quick. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, and the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, who John, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to them, These are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But then he said to me, Do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of you, of yours and of your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So I truly believe we as Christians, and that's the end there, that we need to be looking forward to that final supper that we will have with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait. Cannot wait for that day, church. So in quick summary, let's just go over it one more time. One, we need to look first to God. Two, we need to look to Christ and what he did on the cross. Three, we need to examine ourselves Four, we have to examine everything around us, discern the body around us, take a look around at the people inside of our church and all the divisions that we might have. And number five, we need to look forward to the day where we are going to be with Christ permanently. I cannot wait for that. I keep saying it, but I can't. Uh, These are things that, and this isn't some be-all, say-all, check-the-block list. These are just some ways that I think we can go about coming to the Lord's table in that worthy manner that we were discussing. Now, with that being said, I do want to say that, sadly, there are some churches out there that will take communion very lightly uh, and not call for this examination of self, and they'll never preach on it or talk about it, or when was the last time you heard a message on it? That's what I really want to dig into right now. And this we're about to wrap this up. This is going to be really short, but I think it is important to point out that there are different churches who will hold different styles of communion and who they allow and how they address it. And you may see this in your church, or maybe you're looking for a church and you want to see, ask how, how they take communion and how they view it. So typically we'll see three different types. Number one, you'll have what's called the closed communion. And first off, I just want to say before we do get into this, that I believe the church does have the right 
to administer communion the way that they see fit, as long as they are keeping within those biblical guidelines. It's not some cut and dry, this is the exact way you have to do it. As long as they are within the, bib, the, the, the way the Bible has communion written down, how it talks about partaking in the Lord's Supper, I believe there's a variety of ways that this can be administered, and it's on the church leadership uh, to go ahead and determine that, as long as they don't go outside Scripture. So number one, the first thing you're going to see is called closed communion. And this is where a church will not allow you to partake in the Lord's table unless you are a member of that church. I don't see anything wrong with that. This is the church's way of guarding, ensuring that nobody's coming to the Lord's table that is not a believer. Because yes, you have to be a believer in order to partake in this. This isn't something that non-believers do. Because remember, what you're doing when you're taking communion is you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns, just as it says in the main passage we went over. Those who are not saved do not proclaim the Lord's death, and they are thus then taking it in an unworthy way. So a closed communion for members only of that church is one way of doing that. Like I said, I don't think that's wrong at all. Now, I do think you can overstep your bounds a little too much. Some churches will try to say if you weren't baptized by that specific church, then you cannot take it. I'm not exactly a fan of that, um, and this really dives into some denominational discussions that we're not going to get into specifically with Pentecostals and how they view baptism and whatnot. But like I said, we're not going to get too deep into that. Uh, another view that is held on the communion, which is known as a partially closed or partially open, depending on who you talk to, uh, type communion. And this is one that the church that I attend, this is how we hold it. We allow anybody who is a professing believer at that church to partake. You don't have to be a member, uh, but you do have to be a professing believer. And a warning will be given out before each one. One will say exactly that, that you must be a professing believer before you can come up here and do this. And number two, that you need to examine yourselves to make sure that you do not have unrepentant sin inside of your heart and you are or and, and you don't have any unconfessed sins inside of you. You need to come to the Lord's table in a totally worthy way. Uh, pretty much going over those five topics is what we'll repeat almost every single time before we take it. Those five points. Uh, th that's what we need to do before we come, and then we allow them to come up and partake in it. Uh, but like I said, not without that strict warning. Now, sadly. And this, gets, this could get into a whole other debate, and I'm not going to get into it too far, but th there are churches that have what is called an open communion, and this is an open communion definition. You know, It varies from person to person on what you say. Some people will say what, what I do is, is an open communion. You know, But regardless, what an open communion is, exactly as it sounds, they allow anybody to come in and partake of communion. And sadly, they will not even ask... Uh, you know, if someone is saved, they will not give warning for somebody. They will allow little children to come up and take communion. And this gets into what I was saying. This could get much deeper uh, depending on who you talk to, and people will argue with this point. But, you know, I'm very cautious when allowing children to come up and receive communion. I'm also very cautious when allowing children to come up and get baptized because it is, this is a very big deal, and as children are, 
And I'm not saying God can't affect children. And I'm all about what Jesus said. Never forbid the little children to come to me. Never, ever forbid it. But as Christians, we do have to remember and examine that little children, especially those who are raised in faith, and I know my story is very similar to this. I was raised in a good Christian home by a good Christian family. I was always surrounded by God, but I never came to a real true belief in God until much later in life. I just had a superficial belief because this is what my parents taught me. Uh, I believed all the intellectual facts without having any real spiritual change happen. And sadly, we see this a lot with younger children. So I'm very cautious. I'm not going to say I forbid it because the Bible is totally not for that. I'm very cautious when it comes to baptizing and allowing little children to receive communion. And usually that's a talk with the parents that I would like to have being like, hey, check this out. You know, did you talk to them about the importance of this? Did you talk with them about how you need to be saved? Do you talk to them about salvation and what salvation actually is? And me as a church leader, this is something that I truly believe I have a responsibility to do, uh, plain and simple. And we can go on and on and on and on about that. And I'm sure people will have disagreements. And I know people do have disagreements because I've heard it before. <laughs> but um, I just wanted to go ahead and give a quick mention to that. That's all the time we got for this episode. Like I said, if you have any questions or maybe you want a different topic you want talked about, or maybe you didn't like something that I said, because I guarantee you there's probably lots of people that didn't like some of the things that I say, uh, by all means, hit us up. Like I said, social media, I believe now what? Just type it in. You should be able to find us. If not, you can find us on email at ibnw at gmail.com. I hope this episode was edifying and thank you all for listening if you made it this far. Y'all have a blessed one. This is Tim with I Believe Now What, signing out.